Literature makes you feel, and it can get you thinking too. But how do you move from signs on a page to thoughts and feelings? And why does fiction sometimes feel more real than the world around us? My name is Karen Kukkonen, and together with my colleagues from the Literature, Cognition and Emotions Project, LCE for short, we will discuss these and other questions in the coming weeks. Today's guest is Rolf Reber, a professor in cognitive psychology at the University of Oslo. And our topic is the question of how one studies the artful mind uh, in a scientific way or from a psychological um, perspective. Thank you for joining us, Rolf. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, so the artful mind is, is a title uh, of an article that you published uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and I'd like to start by inviting you to tell us a little bit more about what is an artful mind and why is it interesting to study that? The artful mind is a mind that looks beyond the artwork at its making and the context of its making. It is a mind that tries to understand an artwork and not a mind that just reacts to it, as some theories in neuroscience would have it. Tell us a little bit more about those um, theories in, in neuroscience. What does it mean to react to an artwork as opposed to understand it? I think that's uh, the expression mm -hmm. that you used. An artwork is an artifact made by an artist who has an intention to make that artwork and who creates it according to his or her plans. And this artist is also influenced by a culture, by a history, and it would be interesting to look beyond the artwork, to look at these intentions, at the history. And this is also important to understand the artwork. So this is what I mean with the artful mind, that it is a mind that understands the artwork and does not only react to it. Mm. So this would be the mind of someone who, who actually goes to a museum because... She wants to see the latest Munch exhibition. Uh, so she knows uh, this is an artist I've seen before. She knows something about the historical context of the artist. Mm. So all of these things that you were talking about on the side of the person who produces the work of art, that is also relevant for whoever is put in front yes, of the painting. This is relevant for understanding the work of art. And of course, you could go to a museum and just enjoy the beauty of monk paintings. But many people go to museums and they simply do not understand the art they see. They are confused. And even with monk, they may say, oh, there are more beautiful paintings than monk. But if you understand what his achievement is, mm. then you can also enjoy it. So you could be in the shoes of the artist, try to reiterate that achievement and see what the original idea is. Mm. So you try to think about not just, you know, the situation in which the artist was when making a painting like, say, The Scream, but also how difficult it was to make that. Or how difficult it was to arrive at an idea. For example, one of Munch's paintings, which is a girl sitting in a chair, was a scandal because people thought it was blurred. And this painting nowadays seems quite normal. So we have to imagine what an achievement that painting was at that time. To think in new ways. And yes. Yeah. yeah. So, so the whole, this whole context is actually necessary to understand to, as opposed yes, to react. And to yeah. understand also the originality of ideas. Mm. 
And that's something that um, you suggest um, psychology or the scientific study of art and aesthetics should pay a lot more attention to. Yes, than they have done it before because it has been neglected. And there have been two camps, namely the psychological neuroscientific one, that just thought that the appreciation of art is a brain process, whereas sociologists, philosophers or art historians, they thought of art in historical terms. So these were the two extreme camps, and I think to unite those two camps mm. and to look at the brain processes as influenced also by contextual, for example, historical information, that would be a feat. Mm. So you have been working mostly on art. I mean, our example was Munch and paintings. Do you think this kind of challenge or this kind of need is also something that applies to literature? Yes, of course. Reading is not just processing the text or maybe identifying with the main characters, but understanding historical context and the intentions of the author, for example. And we can now also build on what we have said before. We can try to get a new idea. What is the originality, for example, in a novel or in a poem? from the kind of knowledge that literary studies has. Yeah, for example. Because we know what else was The around. kind of knowledge we have about uh, literary studies, about literary history, about uh, the author, about the context in which the author lived and so on. So that would mean that a reader would get quite different experience depending on whether they've just taken a lecture course in the 19th century novel, they would read George Eliot differently. I think so, yeah. And this is something that is interesting for the study of the mind in psychology just as much as it's interesting for literary studies. Yes. One major question in psychology is whether some thought, feeling or behavior is universal or bound to historical time and culture. Literature can help answer the question by showing that some themes are universal across time and cultures For example, in every time and culture we find love, compassion and joy, but also hatred, intrigue and despair. Of course, we also have things that are culture dependent and we notice that when we read some literature from a foreign country and we simply do not understand it. We are confused. So we don't understand the emotion as such, or we don't understand. So I'm, I'm trying to think about, you know, what does this look like? Emotions are, of course, very physical experiences. And, and you get a lot of descriptions of physical experiences in, let's say, a novel. But the way in which that is framed, of course, depends on what kind of cultural yes. protocols you have, whether this is an acceptable emotion or not, or whether it's something you would express or not. The experience of emotion probably is universal, uh, with the exception of uh, some emotions that seem to be difficult to understand. For example, the Asian emotion of Amai, that could be difficult to understand for us. But what may change are triggers of emotions. Mm -hmm. For example, in a culture of honor, as we had in the past, the triggers of emotions of anger are quite different from what triggers anger nowadays. Nowadays, if someone violates my honor, I mean, so what? But uh, that was not so 200 years ago, and it is still different in some countries where 
there is an explicit culture of honor. Even though, of course, I mean, anger is one of the foundational emotions of Western literature as well. If you think of Iliad, which starts with the wrath or the anger of Achilles. In Western culture of the past, there was also a, a culture of honor. Do you think literature is a way of um, understanding that? Maybe not understanding it completely, but we talked about responding versus understanding earlier on. Would you, I mean, from a psychological point of view, say that reading about Achilles' anger or reading about the emotion of Amai mm-hmm. in a Japanese novel, does that is that a chance of getting closer at understanding as opposed to just responding to a, a display of? I think it depends how it is written. If it is written in a way that we can understand it, it helps us understand. Mm-hmm. But if it is written for the initiates, for those who know the culture, then maybe we are just confused. But of course, literature has the role that we can experience things that we cannot experience in real life. So it is a kind of a test bed for, for example, experiences of love, intrigue, war or peace that we may not experience in real life. We might not want to experience. We might not want to experience depending on on, uh, what it is. But we can also have dreams Mm -hmm. or we can also read about dreams that we could not have in real life. So it's something that, if I understand you correctly, it's it's something that might give us, if it's a good translation, I guess there is a work to be done when you translate something and translating not just the words, but also say, make an emotional response more accessible. So if that's true for literature, from what you just said about this sort of testbed of different kinds of emotions, is that perhaps also a source of knowledge for the study of emotions? Not just the psychology of emotions in literature, but the psychology of emotions in general? Can psychology learn something about being human from literature, or is that too big a claim? Yes, I think we can learn something. So one thing we can learn, are these emotion universals or are they culture bound? If uh, different cultures uh, experience emotions differently or have different triggers, we can see that in different literatures by comparing them. We can also learn about emotions in history and culture of honor seems to be a whole system of triggers and emotions that were very usual in that society. So we may learn something about a whole society and how it managed, or a fancy word in literary studies is how we negotiated the emotions in the past. And that is an important uh, source of knowledge for psychology as well. Yes, it gives us a space of possibilities. Mm. And of course, psychology, we can only test people in the present and not in the past. And that is where literary studies can come in. And with historical studies could show, yeah, this is like that in the present. But in the past, other things were possible and show us that uh, what we have nowadays, and nowadays when almost everything is influenced by the Western culture, 
that this is not the only way mm. we can experience emotions. So I think literature plays an important role in showing us that what we may think is universal is not universal at all. You were talking about the space of possibilities that becomes bigger for psychology because of literature or once psychology takes literature into account. And I guess that is also a good way of describing literature as such, that it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's a, a space rich, of possibilities. It's yes. a space of possibilities of imagining how things could be otherwise. But of course, when you expand the space of possibilities, then you also need to find a way of uh, judging that. Then you need to find a way of navigating or negotiating, if <laughs> that's the word you prefer. So you need to have some kind of judgment, some kind of critical, you might call it critical feeling. I understand that you've written a whole book on the topic for finding your way around. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. There's something you call critical feeling. Maybe you could start by telling us what it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, critical feeling is about using feelings to optimize personal or group outcomes. This concept is derived from critical thinking, which is the use of reasoning to optimize outcomes. Critical feeling can, for example, be used to refine our taste in art, music, wine, and, of course, literature. What does that look like? refining your uh, judgment with critical yeah. feeling. There are several levels of, let's say, reading. And maybe it's important to s state that no level of reading is a priori worse than another. But you could read shallowly, just identify with the characters just for enjoyment, for pleasure, and that's it. Now, there is some literature you want to read because it brings you some moral enhancement. When you do that, then you may expose yourself to that literature because you want to learn more about it and you want to get a feeling for that morality. So this would be how you could refine your moral taste. You, of course, could also try to expose yourself to forms of literature to get a taste for it. And, I mean, there are mechanisms like, for example, discrimination learning that, to my knowledge, have not been explored in reading and in literary reading that could lead to a refinement of taste. What is discrimination learning? I mean, the basic paradigm is that you learn a pigeon to peck at a button to get food. Mm -hmm. And after the pigeon has learned to peck the button... You teach the pigeon that it gets food when green light comes up, mm -hmm. then the pigeon can peg the button or the key and get the food. When a red light uh, lights up, nothing happens. You could even punish the animal by a light uh, foot shock or something like that. So this is discrimination learning that you learn if there is a green light, there is a positive consequence. If there is a red light, there is no or even a negative consequence. So if you do certain things, yeah. then you're going to yeah, now get we the are, reward yeah. at the end of the story. You're getting to marry the princess. Is that analog? The analog would be... Now, you could now proceed to wine, wine tasting. Let's wine has different tastes, but uh, if you're not educated in that, you would not taste much of a difference. But if someone tells you, look... If you now attend to this aftertaste here, 
And uh, do you not have like, and then it's also this naming of the tastes. And mm -hmm. it has been found that this discrimination learning has little to do with verbalization. It has much more to do that you learn to differentiate these tastes. And I think in the same way you can learn to differentiate forms in literature. Mm. So if we take colors as an example, you would learn that this is still blue and this is already green. Yes. Kind yeah. of, so things that exactly would be continuous, you can make a, a distinction. Or for them. example, what we if you know the concept of coral as a color, then you do not just say red to it, for example, but you learn to differentiate in finer and finer degrees. And I think that you could also do with literature with form or with morality that you get finer distinctions what is good and or bad what is beautiful and not beautiful and maybe you punish yourself because a lot of literature you no longer can read because you do not like it anymore but you would get more out of mm. what you have learned so you start to, to see more colors or yes, you see yeah. more moral Yes, or when it comes to poems, when it comes to novels, the beauty of the language that you can mm. enjoy it much more because you know that language. You And I'm not sure that would be an interesting topic for research, whether it's really knowing or whether it's a kind of getting the feeling mm -hmm. and whether you can get that feeling without knowing it. So whether you need someone to tell you that this is morally good or this is morally yeah. bad or whether it's something that you can learn implicitly while you're yes, reading. Yes, yeah. I mean, it's like learning your native language. Mm -hmm. If someone makes a mistake, you know that is a bad mistake without knowing yeah. explicitly the rules of the grammar. Yeah. And I think the same way we could think of reading literature, looking at art, learning about morals, that uh, we learn it like our native language. The question, of course, is, is there a, a window of opportunity? Would we have to learn it as a child in order to have a chance to refine it as an adult? Or is it enough when we begin as adults? Because we know when we learn a foreign language after the age of f 14 or so, we probably will not get it to perfection or it's hard much harder yeah but maybe with literature it's possible i'm thinking that you know it's when an you, empirical question it's an empirical <laughs> question okay uh, that so, is, so this uh, could be a study <laughs> that is the main exit for questions we don't know that we say <laughs> okay. it's an empirical question we have to to examine it so literature is something that if i understand you correctly literature is on the one hand something that you develop a critical feeling for so mm -hmm. you develop a sense of refined understanding of literature. You can handle several narrators. You can handle the fact that the story doesn't have an end. So you develop a way of, you know where to pay attention. Yeah, yeah. And maybe also the feelings become different. In a shallow reading, you just enjoy, for example, the victory of the characters or uh, the marriage of the female character with the prince. Whereas with understanding literature, you begin to enjoy also the construction, mm -hmm. the idea, how the the writer has done it. So 
so you developed this artful mind uh, yes, approach. Yes, yeah. yeah. And that seems to be similar to appreciating French wine. Then while you were talking, it seems also that literature is a way of getting critical feelings about something else. If I understand you correctly, if you read a lot of literature, you can also explore, say, certain moral questions yes. or systems, which yeah. I imagine is harder to do with French wine. <laughs> There may be not so much morality in French wine as it is in literature. Um, An empirical question. This, uh, <laughs> I think this is uh, this can be uh, solved philosophically. Okay. But, uh, of course, by reading literature, this is not explicit learning of moral values and maxims, but it is living through those values, and so it's more addressed to feelings than it would be if we learned... Uh, moral treaties about mm. uh, how to behave or something like that. So it's not explicit teaching, but it's living through. Mm. Oh, it's no checklist. And you also examine things. So in mm. literature, you have the opportunity um, to examine from different sides, also mm. from the dark side, so to speak. And uh, then you feel through it mm. and learn through feeling. So you learn something that's real in a way, but you learn it through fiction. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't actually have to be a, a representation of fact in order to work. It seems to be real because you, your work of imagination helps to make it real and uh, to get to the feeling. Mm. I mean, the, the question of fiction and, and truth is, of course, something that's discussed quite a lot in the media and not with relation to literature, but with relation to issues like fake news, to issues of whether we can trust things that are presented as fact. Mm -hmm. And that's something uh, where your research has been quite important as well, I understand, in the investigation of fake news. Yeah, some 20 years ago, we published an article where we have shown that if you show statements in a darker font on a white background, then they are judged as more probably true than if you show that statements with lower contrast. So that just making them more readable makes them seemingly more truthful. This shows, and this was also the goal of the experiment, to show that processing fluency, the ease with which you can process statements, would influence truth judgments. So if it is easy to understand, then you believe it. Mm. Actually, there are quotes going back to Napoleon and explicitly in Hitler's Mein Kampf where repetition and ease play a prominent role. So we are not the first to find that out. Uh, others have intuitively found out that and we are just uh, doing some systematic work to mm. show that uh, these intuitions are, one could say, unfortunately, true. From how you describe the, the principles according to which uh, you feel that something is true in fake news through repetition and clarity or ease yeah. of perception, it's quite interesting, isn't it? Because it, it, these are very different principles to the ones according to which we think literature is true, um, the ones we think fiction is true. 
I mean, fiction doesn't work very much through repetition or it's not overly clear. Oh, I think there are many sources of fluency in literature. First, I would claim there is some repetition. I mean, there is this famous Chekhov quote that uh, you should not introduce a pistol in the first act if you don't use it in the fifth, if not someone is killed in the fifth. So there if is a kind of fired, priming yeah. so that you are receptible mm -hmm. to uh, this pistol in the fifth act. There are, I'm sure there are repetitions there. The, so, so, I mean, this is what Vera Tobin writes in her book, Elements of Surprise, where she shows how writers plant some things into the text that we forget, mm -hmm. but when it comes again, then uh, it makes sense to us and it helps us to make sense that it is uh, hidden there. That would be an mm. example how fluency also works in literature. Actually, I think literature does not work according to the principles of critical thinking to get at the truth. Mm -hmm. Literature goes much more for feelings mm -hmm. as political speeches, for example. Now, with political speeches, it would be great if they would go for critical thinking of the people, but they exploit the feelings. And literature, I think, good literature does not exploit the feelings of the reader, but at least maybe play with them. Mm -hmm and hopefully also uncover them at some point. As an example of ideal use of critical feeling. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. Do you have a, a recommendation for our listeners on what is um, a good book to read uh, to experience that? At the moment, I try to get some rest from uh, the hectic of everyday life. I, I have read Adalbert Stifter's Summer, which uh, in English translation is Indian Summer. So if you, and I mean, it is as if you had all the time of the world. And actually, Stifter is very good at planting those cues mm -hmm. that later all play uh, a role. So maybe you may even be bored during the first uh, chapters I mean, it's an 800 or 900 page work, but it all comes to a resolution. I, I think it's a great read because it's it really is very peaceful, very restful, a kind of a old-fashioned utopia. It's not a utopia what you would have nowadays, but it's a very peaceful and uh, calm uh, book. And at the moment, I'm reading The Vitico, also by Adalbert Stifter, but I have read too little in order to recommend it. Perhaps at the ne next podcast then. Next podcast, the next year, <laughs> yeah. I, I may <laughs> recommend it, yeah. Thank you so much for taking us all the way from Munch and the Artful Mind to Fake News, Critical Feelings and Adalbert Stifter. Yeah, thank thanks you, Thanks for Karin. joining us. Yeah. And also thanks to everyone listening to this podcast. We hope to have you along again soon.